The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Someone has finally found a way to address opioid misuse and addiction among people suffering with chronic pain. And we are so fortunate to have him as our guest. Joining us today is Dr. Eric Garland, the world's leading expert on the use of mind-body therapies to treat opioid misuse for pain. In 2020, Dr. Garland completed the largest randomized control trial of more, mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. He found that this innovative treatment effectively reduced opioid misuse by 45% nine months after the completion of the treatment. And this is just what Dr. Garland will be talking about. Dr. Garland is a Distinguished Endowed Chair in Research, a Distinguished Professor and Associate Dean for Research in the University of Utah College of Social Work. He's the Director of the Center on Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development. He's the Associate Director of Integrative Medicine in support of oncology and survivorship at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. He's a research health scientist in the whole health at Salt Lake Veterans Administration Medical Center. As the principal investigator or co-investigator of mindfulness-based treatment, he's received considerable funding to continue his work, particularly including trials of mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. Dr. Garland is a distinguished fellow of the National Academies of Practice and has received many honors. His work has been covered by the New York Times, the Washington Post, LA Times, and many more. Dr. Eric Garland, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. So let's start with the question that many people who are not addicted wonder about. How do you define opioid misuse for chronic pain? Good question. Good question. And, you know, it's a, these are, these are uh, sticky subjects, hard hard to get into. So I'm glad we're starting with this topic. So opioid misuse is a term that specifically speaks about the use of opioids in ways that are not prescribed. So typically, uh, if you have chronic pain, a physician prescribes you opioids, they prescribe you a specific dose to take each day, and that dose is to be taken for the purpose of alleviating pain. But and, but there there are there's a subset of, of folks with chronic pain who take opioids who may take a higher dose than their doctor prescribes, or they may take opioids for other reasons besides pain. They might take opioids to reduce stress or to deal with depression or to help them to calm down their anxiety or to help them to sleep. And that's also a form of opioid misuse. And then there are some people who take opioids uh, 
because of the high that they give. So those are three different types of opioid misusing behaviors. And, and all of them um, can, can be risky. They, they can increase the risk of developing opioid addiction, also known as opioid use disorder. I see. Okay. And it certainly starts to make sense in terms of people start to fear the pain, then they start to feel stressed about the pain and even the use of the drug. It's probably a very, very vicious cycle. That's right. And, and you know, what starts out as, as using opioids to alleviate pain, um, physical pain, over time, the person may not realize it, but taking opioids may also start to alleviate the emotional pain in their life. Um, as I said, feelings of depression or anger or fear. And, uh, and then they, they continue to take the drug thinking that the drug is, is alleviating their physical pain and not realizing that it may also be helping them with their emotional pain. And then uh, when, when the person is starting to experience greater degrees of, of emotional distress in their life, um, then that may actually encourage them uh, consciously or unconsciously to start taking higher doses of the drug. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, not, every, not everybody with chronic pain who's prescribed opioids does this. In fact, most people don't. Most people take opioids just as their doctor uh, prescribes them. But, but there is a significant subset of, of individuals who do engage in opioid misuse. And last year alone, um, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health um, indicated that 9.3 million Americans misused prescription opioids. Wow. And, and then, of course, we have the tragic deaths that are often associated with opioids. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, the, the, these medications um, can be helpful to patients. Many, many patients feel like opioids are necessary for them to, to live a, a life and to, to function um, and for their quality of life. But, but these medications can also um, create harm as well. And okay. so it's a real edged sword. Well, what's so interesting, and we're going to go into the study now and correct me on this, is that the folks that in the study, and, and, and the study included um, 250 adults, 64% were women. They were age, mean age of 51. And they had coke uh, occurring, opioid misuse, and chronic pain. And they were either randomly, they were randomly um, assigned to either the more group or just supportive psychotherapy, which of course has been shown to be effective and included psychoeducation, um, some, some diary writing, um, empathic support, etc. But we're going to focus now on um, the mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, which is a study which has so dramatically shown the, the drop in opioid misuse even nine months after. And am I right on this? People were not being asked to lower their dosage at any point in the study, Dr. Garland? That's right. So we, we, did not, we did not ask patients to reduce their opioid dose. We did not push them to cut their dose. We did not try to taper them off of opioids. We simply provided them uh, the skills of mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring 
as a way of uh, as a way of of coping with pain and um, as a way of of gaining greater self awareness and <clears throat> self control or self regulation um, and and as a way of improving uh, the quality of, quality of their life increasing natural, healthy pleasure, joy, and meaning in life. So we gave patients these tools, but we didn't ask them to reduce their opioid use. And what was so actually so amazing was that patients started cutting their opioid dose on their own. Right. So by nine months after the end of the treatment, 36% of the patients in the, in the more therapy group were able to cut their opioid dose in half or greater. So that was just, it really, really blew me away because, again, we didn't push people to do this and, and the doctors weren't cutting people's opioids. The, the, these folks with chronic pain were just deciding to reduce their own use uh, because they didn't need it anymore as much because they were getting, getting more, the more help than, uh, more help from, from these mind-body skills that they were practicing. Okay, so let's go to that, because people are probably saying, well, tell us what it is, tell us what it is. So let's go through. So there are listeners here at the way people heard it in that study. Let's go through the steps of the, that the folks heard and learned to work with um, in the mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement group. So the first one you talk about is meditation on breathing and body sensations, that comes under mindfulness. Tell us what exactly that means and how that yeah. works. Yes, and actually there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a step that comes slightly before that, which is the first thing that we, we do is we explain to patients uh, how pain works in the brain. Right. And we make it very clear that, that pain, pain is not just in the body, but pain is in the brain. And that all, all pain, no matter what the source in the body, whether it's from a herniated disc or whether it's from arthritis in your knee um, or whether it's, it's from some sort of traumatic injury or, or even, uh, you know, a migraine headache, regardless, uh, signals are carried by the nerves into the brain and the brain then processes those signals and as the brain processes the signals from the body, it produces the experience of pain. And so, therefore, if you engage in a practice that can change the way your mind functions, like mindfulness meditation, then you can change the way your brain functions, and therefore, you can actually change your experience of pain. Mm. So we first provide some education about that concept and help, help people to understand it. And, and to be very clear, we're not telling people that their pain is all in their head. Their pain is definitely in, in their body. You know, in the case of somebody with a herniated disc and there's disc material pressing on a nerve, uh, you know, that's, there's disc material pressing on a nerve, but the pain is in their body. But the brain is also part of the body. And so if you can change the way the brain functions, you can change your experience of pain. So we do that first by teaching mindfulness meditation and um, in the beginning, we teach patients to focus their attention on their breath, notice the sensation of the air moving into their nostrils, notice the warmth or the coolness of the, of the air, and then when their mind begins to wander, to notice where the mind has wandered off to, and not to get upset with themselves or beat themselves up because their mind is wandering, 
but just to notice that the mind has wandered and then acknowledge those thoughts and feelings, then let them go and bring their attention back to the breath. And we call that the loop of mindfulness, that entire process of focusing on the breath, noticing that the mind has wandered, accepting that the mind has wandered, and then bringing the attention back to the breath. That, that, that is one loop of mindfulness. So we teach people to, to do multiple loops of mindfulness to develop the muscle of their mind, um, to strengthen the muscle of their attention, their self-awareness, and their self-control. And, and we liken it to, to working out. You know, if, you wanted, if you wanted to make your biceps stronger, you would lift weights, you would curl a dumbbell, and every time you curl the dumbbell, your bicep gets stronger. So in mindfulness, every time you focus on your breath, but then your mind wanders, and then you bring your attention back to the breath, you've just curled the dumbbell of your mind. You've just strengthened your mindfulness. Right. And so as the patient develops this strengthened mindfulness, <clears throat> then we teach the patient how to apply the mindfulness to actually deal with pain. Okay. And we do this through a practice that we call zooming in. So we ask patients to actually focus their attention on the pain sensation itself and to zoom into it and to break it down into, into, the, into the sensory experiences that make up the pain. So rather than focusing on some terrible, awful anguish in, in one's body, we teach patients to zoom into the pain and to break it down into sensations of warmth or tightness or tingling, as well as to notice the spaces in between those sensations where there's either no sensation at all or sometimes notice even pleasant sensations right next to the painful one. <clears throat> And, and, and a pretty amazing thing happens. You know, I've, I've been doing this work for more than a decade, and, uh, you know, part of my day job is to listen to tapes of therapists um, delivering this therapy so I can coach them and teach them how to be more effective therapists in delivering mindfulness. And I can't tell you how many, how many times I've heard time and time again, <clears throat> these, are, these are people with pretty severe pain, you know, a, a 6, a 7 out of 10, an 8 out of 10 on average. And they say something like this, you know, you asked me to focus my mindfulness on my pain. And you asked me to notice, does the pain have a center? Does it have edges? And I looked for the, the edge of my pain. And I, and I couldn't really find the edge of my pain. I just kind of felt fuzzy. And I kept looking, using my mindfulness to, to look for the edge of the pain. And, I, and I, all I noticed was it wasn't really an edge. It was just, fu it was just fuzzy. And then I couldn't find my pain. <laughs> I didn't even no notice my pain anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and it, 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 it's, and I, you know, it sounds crazy. and It may be hard for your listeners to believe, but this is the story that patients tell us time and time again. And, and actually what we, didn't, what we haven't mentioned so far is that the more therapy also significantly reduced physical pain intensity. Mm -hmm. And 50% of the patients treated with more achieved a clinically significant reduction in pain. So their pain actually hurt them less. Um, and, and that has to do with, with, with the impact of mindfulness on, on pain processing in the brain. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. Well, one of the things as the listener I, I'm feeling is that, so what the mindfulness does 
Dr. Garland, is it puts me in charge. Not only, first of all, physically, my body shifts because breathing opens a space. But the fact that I'm now busy, in control, working on looking at the pain and finding the edges, I'm not a victim of the pain anymore. I'm now in charge charge of my pain, and that's a very different relationship with pain. And it makes sense then that the pain starts to abate because you've taken over. I I don't want to interrupt you, but we're going to have to stop um, to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we are so fortunate to be here with Dr. Eric Garland, the lead researcher on the largest randomized control study of mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, which is exactly what we're talking about, and he's breaking down the pieces of it for us. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Did you know that millions of people around the world do not have children? And yet the personal and professional experiences of people without children remain largely unacknowledged across cultures and within our personal networks. Public and workplace policies, media narratives, and educational content often reflect an unconscious bias rendering our experiences invisible. New Legacy Radio engages these missing conversations with the voices of our community and allies and through committed action for meaningful change. New Legacy Radio, Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, our 40s sit firmly in midlife. We are starting to feel our place and have many productive years ahead. But now is the best time to plan for our future life. Listen for 45 Forward with host Ron Roel. From retirement to health and technology to caring for our parents, no topic is off the table. We don't have a roadmap to our actual future, but we can start to plan more effectively. Tune into 45 Forward, Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. 
Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Eric Garland, and I'm very excited that he's really giving us the inside picture of more mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, which has proved in studies to reduce opioid misuse by 45% nine months after the completion of the treatment. So, Dr. Garland, we were talking, you just explained beautifully how mindfulness works in terms of us taking charge of the pain. Um, you mentioned at the break, there's a, a place that you have part, the participants use this very actively. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So, uh, so I described how, how we teach patients to use mindfulness to cope with pain, but we also teach patients mindfulness to increase awareness and, and, and increase control over opioid use. So the way we do this is we ask patients to practice a few minutes of mindfulness before they take their opioid medication. So when they walk up to their pill bottle, for example, and they're ready to take their pills for the next dose, instead of just taking the pill mindlessly, you know, without thinking about it, we ask them to actually sit down for, for several minutes and to practice mindfulness right while they're sitting right next to the pill bottle. Right. And, and to notice how their attention starts to get captured by the, by the pills, how they start to have thoughts about taking the pills, whether it's positive thoughts, like I want to take the pill, this pill is going to make me feel better. Maybe it's negative thoughts, like I hate taking this pill, I wish I wasn't dependent on it. We ask them to just have this open awareness of their experience in the moment and notice potentially if any cravings for taking opioids arise. And, and, to not immediately react, but just to sit and practice mindfulness for several minutes. And then when this period of mindfulness is, is done, then they can decide to take the pill as they normally do if they want, or maybe they, they feel like they don't need to take the pill. Maybe they can actually push the doses out, so skip a dose and, and wait into the next dose to take their pill. Um, whatever they decide is totally fine. We don't, we don't push them or preach to them. This is a decision that they get to make on their own. But we just want them to make this decision with full mindful awareness to understand that, you know, they're putting a powerful medicine into their brain and their body. And, and so to give it the attention and the respect that it deserves. And what's, what's quite about this practice is that many patients discover that uh, they think they need the pill, but then when they sit down to practice mindfulness, that the mindfulness is actually alleviating their pain in that moment and that they, maybe they don't actually have to take the pill. And that's how some of these patients began to push, to push out their opioid doses, to skip doses, um, and, and for the patients who did decide to reduce their opioid use, that was the beginning of the path to doing it. Was there ever anyone saying, and when I did the mindfulness practice before taking the dose of the pill, the mindfulness brought me to wondering, um, am I really sad or am I in pain? Um, am I yes, really? yeah. exactly. So that, that, that was the other real purpose of this practice. Some people started to realize, hey, I'm not, maybe I'm not taking this pill because I'm in physical pain right now. Maybe I'm taking this pill because I'm stressed out or because I'm sad or because, or because I'm craving the opioid or because I'm taking it out of habit because I've just, this is when I always take my pill and I'm just taking it now because I always take it, but maybe I don't actually need it as much as I think I do. And that, that kind of insight 
that aha moment, um, it, it was really powerfully important therapeutic for, for our patients. As I mentioned to you before, and I'll say to our listeners, I feel like it's this little regulatory tool that now the person has that really gives them some power in in a uh, pain drug kind of paradigm. Um, okay, let's go to the next. Let's go to the next um, step: reappraisal. So, if I'm in a group and all our listeners are with me, what do you tell us about reappraisal? How does this help us? Yes, thanks for asking. So reappraisal is the second foundation of more, and it's all about the idea that the way we think about the events in our lives determines how we feel about them and how we react to them. So our thoughts, our interpretation, our appraisals of the meaning and the significance of the events of our lives, and particularly the, the stressful, difficult events of our lives really determines our response to those events. So this is the this notion is really the cornerstone to cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea that we can actually actively challenge and change our negative thinking patterns and that doing this will reduce our emotional distress and will make us feel better and help us to make better choices in our life. And in so in more we teach this skill of reappraisal, which is really very similar to the cognitive restructuring skills in CBT, teaching patients to to challenge and change negative thought patterns. But we do it mindfully. So we, we, we inject a little mindfulness into the process. So what we do is we guide the patient to become aware when they're stressed out of the negative thought patterns and negative beliefs that they're having about their life situation. And then once once the patient is aware of their negative thought patterns, we then ask them to practice a few minutes of mindful breathing to calm down the mind, to calm down the body, to allow the mind to become open to new ways of seeing, become more psychologically flexible. And then they, then they open up their eyes after several minutes of mindful breathing practice. And then we ask them to, to contemplate several questions, including what's a more helpful way of thinking about this situation. Is there an alternative explanation? What's the proof that your negative thoughts about the situation are true? What's the proof that they're not true? If you had a friend in this situation, what would you want them to believe? Is there, is there a blessing in disguise here? Is there a silver lining to this situation? And how can facing this situation make you a stronger person or teach you something important or bring a sense of meaning to your life. And so we ask those questions and we ask the patients to, to deeply contemplate those, those, those questions and then to use those questions to help them to come up with a more positive reappraisal of the difficult situations in their life, um, which will then create positive emotions and help them to, uh, to act more skillfully. I, I love the, the questions, and when you flip it to say, if someone said to you, I'll never stop being in pain, I'll never have a life, the average listener would say, really? You know, you've had rough times in the past, but we don't do that often to ourselves. But so the questions are so good in terms of really um, having us consider, and as you say, 
re reconceptualize the the negative thinking that this pain's not going to stop. I'm going to have another bad day, and this is it. This is my life confined to the recliner and the drugs. And as soon as you start, the person opens up the space with the breathing and the mindfulness and can start to think. Well, wait a minute. I think I'm going to speak to the grandchildren today, and you know what? Maybe this mindfulness, this this more program could work, or um, maybe the surgery in a few weeks is going to make a big difference. Or so. In other words, the reappraisal is a very powerful piece to this. Absolutely, it's really important. And and I my my theory, which I call the mindfulness to meaning theory. Uh, asserts that mindfulness promotes the ability to engage in reappraisal because mindfulness helps us to take a broader perspective on our lives and helps us to start to notice, even in a very difficult life situation, it helps us to start to notice the aspects of our life that are not negative but actually might be neutral or even positive. And so we can then take in a, a broader, more, holistic view, a more balanced view of our life situation. And out of that, we can come up with, with a more helpful way of seeing our lives and a, and a greater sense of meaning in the face of, of adversity. Well, I love that at the very beginning, you, you say, you know, the mindfulness is connected with the breathing. Because as soon as people start the breathing, breathing in with their nose, out with their mouth, they've just bought time. They've just opened a space. And then the That's reappraisal right, right. become and the mindfulness reappraisal becomes really possible. It's it's a well, it's a great next step. Now, how about savoring? If we're in a group, what are you going to do to help us understand savoring? Yes, and, and, and let's save the best for last, as, as we say. So, um, savoring is is a wonderful practice and just critically important to helping people to heal from from opioid misuse and addiction, and also chronic pain. So we, we teach savoring uh, by, when we used to do the, these groups in person uh, before COVID hit, we would bring in a bouquet of roses, and we'd, we'd let each patient choose a rose. They'd pull the rose out of the bouquet, and then we teach them to focus their mindfulness onto the rose. So mindfully attending to and appreciating the pleasant colors textures and the scent of the flower, as well as the touch of its petals against their skin. Mm. And then during this process, we ask people to use mindfulness and become aware of when positive emotions start to arise in their mind or sensations of pleasure start to arise in their body. And then when the patient notices positive emotions or, or, or pleasant feelings, they're, they're taught to turn their attention inward and to savor the positive inner feeling, mm. deeply appreciating it and absorbing it into the center of their being. And we use a metaphor. So b breathing in that positive feeling like water seeping into soil. So just taking this positive feeling and allowing it to deeply kind of pervade their mind and body. And then, and then really enjoy it and, and, and uh, sort of uh, get all the, all the pleasure they possibly can out of the experience. And then, of course, positive feelings naturally begin to fade away. When the feelings fade away, we teach the patient to turn their attention back towards the flower, to savor its, its beauty again. Mm -hmm. 
And then again, when they notice the positive feelings in the mind or the body, they turn their attention inward and savor that positive inner feeling again. And eventually they may start to notice meaningful thoughts or memories or associations. Or sometimes people actually have this experience of this sense of deep interconnectedness between uh, themselves and the flower. They feel this sense of closeness or maybe even a sense of oneness between themselves and the flower. And we call this the experience of self-transcendence, the sense of being connected to something beyond yourself, the sense of connectedness between the self and the world. And, um, and this, this, this self-transcendence actually is also a really powerfully therapeutic experience that can, that can be very meaningful, uh, very, very moving and fulfilling for patients. So that's the, that's the savoring practice, and it's 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 it, as I indicated, it's it's exquisitely important in the treatment of addiction. We didn't talk about this yet, but from the perspective of addiction neuroscience, we know that as a person becomes more and more uh, dependent on on a on a mind altering drug like opioids, there are changes that happen in the reward system of the brain, including structures like the orbital frontal cortex and the ventral striatum, such that the brain becomes more sensitive to stress, uh, to pain, and hypersensitive to drug-related cues. Mm. But at the same time, these parts of the brain become insensitive to the natural healthy pleasure Mm -hmm. derived from pleasant everyday sort of experiences and objects in life. So the things that used to give the person a sense of pleasure and happiness and meaning, they stop, they stop making the person feel so good as the brain becomes more and more dependent on the drug just to feel okay. Right. So this practice of savoring is actually designed to reverse that process. Absolutely. So we're teaching people to use mindfulness to become more sensitive to natural healthy pleasure, and then that should reduce their, how much pull they feel from the drug and thereby decrease their craving and addictive behavior. And that and this is actually what we've shown in, in several neuroscientific studies that, that mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement is actually making the brain more sensitive to natural healthy pleasure. And the more sensitive that the brain becomes to natural healthy pleasure, the less patients crave the drug. Mm, it's, it's wonderful. It opens an, a whole new repertoire of not only neurophysiological capacity, but just enjoying life. So just at this very point, I want to ask the question, with savoring, did people come in and talk about, because I'm a very big group person, as you know, um, been with American Group Psychotherapy Association for many, many years. Did the people, this was a group experience, come in and talk about their opportunities to savor different experiences? Yes, and so th- this practice is is just the initial introduction of the practice, and I, I didn't mention this, but then we ask patients to go and practice savoring at home on their own with whatever naturally occurring pleasures are happening in their life, you know, whether it's savoring the mo- a morning cup of coffee uh, at the, at the, at, on your porch, um, you know, listening to the birds singing as the sun is rising, or maybe it's, you know, savoring a beautiful sunset, or savoring the smile uh, of your grandkids' faces when they're playing in the backyard and you're watching them laughing and having fun. Or maybe it's, you know, savoring 
the feeling of holding uh, holding hands with your spouse, um, sitting there on the couch watching TV. You know, what, whatever it is, people are practicing favoring with these naturally occurring pleasant experiences in life. And 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 yes, and they report that that doing so not only not only creates a feeling of happiness, but it also actually can alleviate pain. Absolutely. Well, it's also does does distraction fit into this? Um, yeah. Because I, I say it only because having had real back problems and surgery recently, my distraction was being outside, reading something I loved. And the opportunity to savor something else really does move you away from pain. Yes, yes. And, and I think distraction is, is, is definitely a way of framing it. And I think most people who have experienced pain have had the experience that when they're really focused on doing something that they enjoy, when they're really happily engaged in, in, a, in a positive experience, that they don't, they don't pay attention to their pain so much, that their pain isn't bothering them so much. So savoring kind of capitalizes on this natural tendency that we all have um, to focus on on the things that are good and and to distract ourselves from pain. But now we're teaching this as a as a very specific mental training technique. I think there's another component besides distraction, or another way of putting it is you know shifting attention. And but the other component, Dr. Gwalin, hang on one minute because I'm. Telling me I'm out of time here. So let's just hold that one and we're going to come right back with it. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're so fortunate to have with us Dr. Eric Garland, the world's leading expert on the use of mind body therapies to treat opioid misuse for pain. And he's talking about all the components of this powerful new intervention, mindfulness oriented recovery enhancement, which was so effective in reducing opioid misuse. Stay with us. Much more is coming. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're looking for a radio program focused on reinventing public education, look no further. Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis will have you graduating with a new perspective on the public system and offer insight on what needs to be changed. Let's Reinvent School, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to get real, discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson, the Midlife Whisperer. Your midlife roadmap is the blueprint you need to roll with change, transform yourself, and create a fabulous second adulthood. 
Get answers and solutions for whatever you're up against and transform problems into opportunities. Make your next life chapter your best chapter with Rock Your Midlife every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Eric Garlin about more mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. He has been really showing us, as if we were sitting with him, each of the aspects, the components of more. And I just mentioned to him, um, none of these alone, I don't know if they would be as powerful, but the constellation and the overall practice under mindfulness, I mean, I guess that's where the title comes in, really pulls them together and gives somebody a whole um, toolbox to deal with combating opioid misuse. So I'm just loving how the components fit together, Dr. Garland. Well, thank you. Yes, and, 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 and I agree with you. I think the, these three components of mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring they're really synergistic. They 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 facilitate and strengthen each other, and combined, you know, it just makes a more powerful recipe. Um, so coming back to savoring, what I was going to say is that uh, in addition to savoring, working by helping people to shift their attention, we also know that when people are feeling happy and they're feeling pr- pleasure, that their brains release endogenous opioids. Their brains release endorphins. I mean, we've all heard of this term endorphins. That's brain's own natural opioids. That's your brain's own natural painkiller. So when you're savoring, not only are you, are you shifting your attention away from pain onto something positive, something pleasurable, but, that, but then when you feel that pleasure and you feel that happiness, um, your brain is going to produce its own endogenous opioids, its own natural painkiller, and that should have a, a positive effect, and, and, and our data shows that it, it does. I, I, and, and, you know, also, so it's important not only in terms of teaching people how to, how to create a sense of natural, healthy pleasure in their life. In other words, we're teaching people how to make themselves feel good naturally without the drug, and so therefore that should, that should reduce their reduce their, their need for the drug, their, their craving for the drug, their misuse of the drug. And that's, in fact, what our data shows. But also, the practice can alleviate pain through, through these other endogenous opioid mechanisms. Wonderful. So the other thing that you're doing is you, you keep pulling it back to taking on the opioid misuse when you pull in the three minutes of mindfulness and they have the bottle right there. The other thing I wanted to be sure that we mentioned is, I, is it the case that the participants were then, they got some educa- psychoeducation 
for opioid misuse and chronic pain. And then they engaged Dr. Garland in 15 minutes of an audio guided. Um, they got extra um, input on all of these components. This 15 minute audio guided mindfulness reappraisal practices. Um, did people yes. report that was helpful? Yes. Yeah, so we so we don't only teach these skills in the in the in the more therapy sessions, the group therapy sessions, but we also ask patients to practice these skills at home on their own, and we gave them audio recordings of of the of the techniques to help guide guide the skill practice. And the more they practiced, uh, the the better they got. The the greater they, they strengthened their mindfulness, their sense of self awareness, their sense of self control their ability to experience positive emotions in everyday life. And that really built them up and got them ready for this next next piece of more. You know, you wanted me to walk you through the treatment. So after the patients have built this solid platform of mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring, then we teach them to, how, to, how to use mindfulness to deal with craving itself. Okay. And we do that through an exercise that we call uh, the chocolate exercise. So we, we, get, we, ask that we give them a piece of chocolate. And we ask them to unwrap the chocolate, but, but to not eat it, and hold it up to their nose and lips and really smell the chocolate and start to really crave it. So their mouth starts to fill up with saliva, starts to really into wanting to eat it. And then we ask them to focus the mindfulness on the, on the sensation of craving itself and to zoom into it and to break it down. Just like we teach people to zoom into and break down pain, we, we teach people to zoom into and break down the experience of craving into sensations and thoughts and emotions and to notice are there spaces inside those sensations where there's no sensation at all or maybe a pleasant sensation right next to an unpleasant one. And so just as you said, you know, we're teaching people basically to have control, self-control over this experience of craving. And then we ask them to imagine that, that they're not holding a piece of chocolate, but instead that they're holding their pill in front of their face. And to and to use mindfulness to deal with the craving to take the opioid, wow. and then lastly, we ask them to, to deeply contemplate the reasons why they want to become less dependent on the opioid, and the re- and and the benefits why how their life will become better as they become more free and less less dependent on this on this medication, and that's the mindfulness of craving technique, and it's 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 really powerful. It sounds, what's so wonderful about it is starting with the chocolate and then going to the pill, but then what strikes me is when they're in the mind frame of craving, you've taught them to open a space to consider. I mean, if you're in craving, whether it's the chocolate or the pill, you're not even thinking of other options of things you love in your life. This is a problem with weight control, etc. You're just not. You're you're, you're right. just focused on that. But the capacity, it's such it's like brain training. It's this regulatory training that they're able to step aside for a minute and think, but wouldn't I rather wouldn't I rather go for the walk and meet my friend or <laughs> don't I think right. I'd prefer to watch that sitcom that's hysterical? In other words, you've given right. them the ability to just open that space. That's right. That's right. Wow. And again, if we do all of this without judging people for their opioid use, without pushing them to change it. It's yeah. got to be their own. Got to be their own choice to do this. 
but we're giving them, as you said, we're opening a space. We're giving them a, a, a means of changing this if they want to change it. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's really powerful. And, and I, you know, I said the word meaning and, and um, that ultimately that's where all these techniques are leading to. We're, we're trying to help people reclaim a sense of, of meaning from the experience of, of chronic pain and, and having worked with many people with chronic pain, having, having dealt with my own pain in my life, I, I'm very aware of how chronic pain can really steal a person's sense of identity, their sense of self, their sense of purpose in life, steals the things that they once felt were meaningful. And so our goal here is really to help people to reclaim that sense of meaning in life in spite of pain. And, and so the, the, the end of the more treatment really focuses on that and teaches people how to, how to become aware of um, their sense of interconnectedness in life, their sense of connection to the world around them, to get a sense of, of what their purpose is in life, and, and, and also the perp- get them to get a sense of, of the purpose of their pain and, and to start to contemplate how has facing the pain actually taught them something important in life or help them to grow as a person, um, which seems kind of a paradox, but, but it's an important thing for people to contemplate. Um, and, and then that, that really helps them to, to have this sense of meaningfulness in the face of, of the difficulty in their lives. Yeah, I, I say to people, they, you now have the wisdom of a survivor, and there is something to being able to take over this, you know, chronic misuse and feel wonderful about it. The the other thing that I have to say about the program is there's no sense of shame and there's a great deal of empathic engagement, which in and of itself drops, you know, anxiety, which stirs pain. There's that whole piece about not demanding that anybody drop the dosage, but the respect with which people were treated in, in these groups seems to me a component also. I agree. Yeah. That, and that's critical. And if, if you don't, if you don't treat people with respect and you don't acknowledge their autonomy, then they're not, then why should they listen to you and, and learn and learning any of the skills that you want to teach them? So that, that really is sort of the basic foundation of everything we do. But I will say that, uh, you know, we both know that that kind of empathic responding is really important in therapy. But we are, are the control group that we used in this study was all about that was empathic responding, listening, respectfulness, providing social support, and mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement. Um, more than more than doubled the effect of standard supported psychotherapy. Right. So. Right. You gave, uh, these, regulation. you gave them regulation tools, Dr. Garland, and yeah. that, that, that's the very big difference that I see. That's right. You, you made that's them, right. you, you put them in charge, which is just, was just remarkable. A quick question. Um, did they get to know each other, the people in the group, and did they support each other's skill building? Yes, they did. They, 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 they definitely developed a sense of camaraderie, and I think that's also one of the powers of the group therapy is that they got to hear their peers talking about how they were using the mindfulness reappraisal and savoring skills to help themselves in everyday life. And, you know, listening to a peer talk about using these skills 
is a really powerful learning experience. Um, you know, it's one thing for a therapist, for an egghead therapist like me to tell a patient, you should try these things. Right. But when they, hear, when they hear somebody across the group trying it and, it and it really helping them and changing their life, that can really motivate people to, to, uh, to take action. Yeah, I, I would imagine that that were true. So at this point, how would a person find a group? First of all, how would people find you, and is there a plan for having the, these type of groups um, be offered in primary care settings, health systems? Is that a plan, or is that part of the funding, or the funding just for research? What people listening may be very interested. How would they learn more? Is what I guess I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's great. So, well, first of all, one a simple way to learn more is, is you should go to my website. Um, which is www.dreericgarland.com. Uh, so www.dreericgarland.com. And you can find on the website information about the more therapy, the research we've done. And also, um, I'm going, so I have trained, to, to answer your question directly, I've trained more than 500 healthcare providers from around the U.S. and internationally at wow. this point in, in the more therapy. Um, so I will be including a directory on my website of, of therapists who are who have been trained in more and who are um, offering more to patients. So that's one way that patients can uh, can can get access to this therapy. My you know my real focus right now is in trying to disseminate this therapy. I've been mm-hmm. studying it for more than. 10 years, and we've done multiple randomized controlled trials of the therapy and shown that it is, it is effective. This, this latest study that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine um, is the largest study to date of more, but we've done several others. And so now that I know that it really works, I want to get it out. And right. I think the best way to get it out is to train healthcare providers and healthcare systems um, to deliver more. And so I'm really passionately focused on this right now. And if any of your listeners are social workers or psychologists or counselors or nurses or physicians, and you're interested in learning more, you know, please reach out to me uh, to get more information about training. But I'm also really, really interested in not only training uh, private practitioners, but training health systems. So yes. you, you, you ask about primary care, primary care, uh, community federally qualified health centers, community health centers, addiction treatment facilities, mental health facilities, and and also, um, you know, large managed care health insurance. Yeah, it's, it's, These are all part of the plan. My goal is to try to train more to healthcare providers in these systems to try to get it out to as many people as possible. Okay. Um, we also do have some ongoing research studies, and in these studies we're providing more um, online through Zoom, and so if Good. if you're a patient, you have chronic pain, and you're taking long-term opioids, and you and you want some help with your pain, or you're interested in reducing your opioid use, um, you could also reach out to us and 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 potentially qualify to get some free therapy through one of the research. Great, great, wonderful. Yeah. But oh, my focus. We have to. We're out of time, <laughs> um, but. You um, just finish your sentence. I'm sorry. Just finish that sentence. No, my focus now is, is dissemination. Let's get it out there. Train as many people as possible, and 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 help to halt the opioid crisis. 
Yeah, it's a it's a fabulous goal and it's a remarkable program. I can't thank you enough for all the work you've done over the years to make a difference in people's lives, people who've faced chronic pain and who've suffered from the opioid misuse. Um, I want to thank you again for coming on Psych Up Live. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast immediately after um, the show airs, and it will be a podcast on my host site, my website, and on every platform, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon. Remember, drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. We've had a very important show today. Thank you for listening. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.